Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. And for those who are visiting this morning, I want to say a warm wel- welcome to you. Welcome to Reformed Baptist Church of Lafayette. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6 we'll be considering this morning. And I'd like for us to consider from this passage the subject of Christian commitment, Christian contentment. That would have been good, a good subject, but we want to talk this morning on Christian contentment. And if it seems unnecessary to qualify the word contentment with the word Christian, then it's really not. Because there's a kind of contentment that is false that is fake, there's a worldly contentment whereby unbelievers are lulled into a state of complacency, out of which they'll eventually come to a rude awakening as to their actual condition before a holy and righteous God. For while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 13. And by contrast, Christian contentment, as we'll see this morning, is distinctively rooted in right relationship with God, in having not things, but in having the Lord Jesus at the very heart and center of our lives. Our text reads, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself had said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that... We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And these verses call attention to at least four matters which we want to consider this morning on the subject of Christian contentment. First of all, We see here in our text the attitude that's prohibited, the attitude that's prohibited. Verse 5a, it is that of loving money. We read, keep your life free from the love of money. Now, when the Bible talks about the love of money here, it goes beyond literal money. We could take this, we could extend this to the whole matter of possessions in general. Keep your life free from the love of things, we could say, the love of material possessions. And the word that's translated here, love of money, comes first in the Greek text, and as such, the writer is emphatically calling attention to this harmful impulse. As we consider this morning the matter of Christian contentment and uh, the related call to keep oneself free from the love of money, free from the love of earthly possessions, let's make this point very clear. There used to be a president many years ago who, when he was going to make a point, he would say, I want to make something abundantly clear. 
And let's make something abundantly clear at this point. And it is this, that the command, keep your life free from the love of money, must not be understood as a total ban on any attempt to strive to better oneself financially. It is not a ban against working hard, against being thrifty, against accumulating wealth as such. The word of God is in no way prohibiting these endeavors. In fact, the word of God is in no way prohibiting the practice of diligently saving so as to enjoy life comfortably, so to speak. In fact, many have the mistaken notion that the Christian is not to enjoy things, that the moment the Christian thinks of enjoying things, then that becomes problematic, that becomes worldly. But that's not true. And how do we know that that's not true? Because First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says this, that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Rather, what the Word of God is prohibiting here in our text this morning is pursuing and making money, acquiring things as an end in themselves, to the point where it masters and controls our entire life, becoming, as it were, an idol in our hearts and lives. As used here in verse 5, the love of money speaks of an overwhelming, overriding craving to have more and more money, to have more and more stuff. It is such obsessive drive for money that our Lord Jesus describes in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 as covetousness. And the question is, why is the inordinate or obsessive love of money an evil to be shunned? Why? And by the way, let's correct this. There are people who say money is the root of all evil. It's not true. It's a misquote of scripture. The Bible says it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And the question is, why is the love of money an evil to be shunned? Or the love of possessions for that matter. And the first suggestion we would give is this, because such driving passion induces one to care more about things than about God. As Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 regarding laying up treasures on earth, here's what our Lord Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will cling to the one and hate the other. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus makes that categorical statement. He says no person can serve God and serve money at one and the same time. Secondly, a lustful love for money breeds a spirit of selfishness. We're reminded here of who? The rich fool. Remember, our Lord Jesus told, told the parable of this rich fool in the book of Luke, chapter 12, how that the ground of this man brought forth plentifully, abundantly. And in his prosperity, amidst the abundance of his harvest, this man all of a sudden had an eye disease. Because he began to speak to himself, I have 
much good laid up for many years, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much good laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man, in his prosperity, in his materialism, was a selfish man because all he could speak of was I, me, and I, me, I, me. He had, we would say, an eye disease. Over the past few weeks, we've been saying that through his series of exhortations here in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 2 through 6, the writer seems to be hinting at various ways in which the command to brotherly love, given in verse 1, may be put into practical effect. As we've seen so far, such love, he tells us, or he suggests to us, will be manifested by hospitality to strangers, verse 2. It will be manifested by solidarity with the suffering, verse 3. And as we saw last week, such love will be evidenced by purity in sexual conduct, verse 4. And the question will be asked, how then does the command here in verse 5 to keep one's life free from the love of money relate to practicing Christian love? And we could say that the one has a bearing, a direct bearing on the other, because you see, where there's a consuming, inordinate love for money or any kind of material possessions, such craving is very likely to dampen any disposition toward Christian hospitality. It's very much likely to cause one to be uncaring toward those who are in need, toward those who are in suffering. Think back, for example, about the writer said in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, where the recipients of the Hebrew epistle were said to have joyfully accepted the plundering of their property in support of those who were in prison since, he says, they knew, in addressing them, he says, since you know that you yourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. And the question is, would that kind of loving, magnanimous spirit be true of one who loves money, of one who pursues material things? Would that kind of outlook on earthly possessions mark one who is given to excessive passion for material things? And the obvious question is hardly. In this regard, we could say that the love of money and material possessions tends to discourage, it tends to jeopardize Christian love and Christian community. Where there is a person who loves things, who loves money, who loves possession, who all they talk about and think about is money, watch that person when it comes to the matter of community, of love, of regard, caring regard for others. The love of money, friends, is an evil to be shunned because the love of money gives one a false sense of security. The love of money gives one a false sense of security. 
Listen to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 11. Here's what the wise man says. He says this, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. It gives one a sense of being okay. It gives one a sense of being so comfortable that one cannot in any way be disturbed. Note Luke chapter 12, verse 15b, inciting the need to be on guard against covetousness in its every form. Our Lord Jesus explained, he says this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here is the point that those who are given to the quest for money, 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 what is true of those persons? They are tempted to find their security in their financial resources. They are tempted not only to find their security in their financial resources, but they are tempted to validate their identity by the abundance of their possessions, by the abundance of stuff they have. And I would say, beloved, the love of money is an evil to be shunned because of the, here's this, the craving for money can never satisfy the soul. Do you know that some of the wealthiest persons are the most miserable persons? Money does not make one happy. You talk to many a millionaire and You see them, you hear them complaining, and you say, what in the world do you lack? And they will tell you, listen, money is not it. In fact, here is what the richest man, one of the richest men of his times, one of the richest person of his time uh, said, one of the richest men of his time, he said this, Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 12, he says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This is coming from the Bible. Nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. And what does he mean by vanity? He means what? Emptiness. In fact, he describes it as a chasing after the wind. Here's what he says, verse 12, in the same breath. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Anxiety. Fear. Fear of what? Fear of loss. The love of money is an evil to be shunned because ultimately, when all is said and done, at the end of the day, an excessive love for money is destructive as it results in one's losing out on the kingdom of God. That's what the word of God teaches Indeed, the Apostle Paul assuredly warns, he warns in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, that the covetous or greedy person is an idolater. And he says this, that such person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So we have in our text, first of all, this morning, the attitude that's prohibited. And the attitude that's prohibited is this. It is a love for money, it is a love for possessions, an overriding, excessive passion 
for the acquisition of money and possessions. The word of God is saying we need to watch it. But why? Because of the dangers involved. Well, let's consider secondly the attitude that's proposed, the alternative rather that's proposed. We've considered first of all the attitude that's prohibited. Let's so consider the alternative that's proposed. And something is going to happen which has never happened in all the years I've been preaching. And you'll be witness to that this morning. The alternative that's proposed, verse 5b, and be content with what you have. The word of God is saying here that rather than greedily pursuing money and possessions, believers in Christ are to be content with what they have and they are not to crave for what they do not have. And that's history because I'm moving on to the third point. Shortest point I've ever preached, which I'm moving on now. Third point. The assurance that's promised. The assurance that's promised. Why should we not love money? Why should we not hunt down money? Why should we not hawk after money? He says this, verse 5c, For he, speaking of the Lord, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, there are at least three things. I want for us to notice, and these three things are features of the text as it appears in the Greek. Three things I want to bring to your attention. The first is this, that in the Greek text, the pronoun he is emphatic, conveying the sense he himself. It's not just that he, the Lord, has said it, but he himself. The second feature that we need to see here is that the verb said is in the perfect tense suggesting that the Lord's declaration that he will never leave nor forsake us stands and that it stands as an enduring, abiding, never failing promise. He has said it and it continues to be a living reality. That's the force of the tense of the verb said. And then thirdly, in the Greek text, the statement has two double negatives. You remember when you used to go to school or those who are presently going to school, if you write a sentence or you're writing an essay and you use two negatives, you use a double negative, that's a no-no. Well, the writer uses not just two, he uses four negatives in the same sentence. Double negatives, actually. So that the sense of the text is similar to someone saying in English. It's like you have heard somebody say this, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. That's the force of the grammar. He himself, the Lord himself, has emphatically declared, I will never, ever, ever leave you nor forsake you. And here we have the Lord himself assuring, pledging to stand by us through thick and thin. 
Indeed, time and again throughout the word of God, we hear God himself addressing individuals by way of comfort, by way of assurance concerning his never-failing abiding presence with them. To the patriarch Jacob, here was a man who was on the run from his brother, a man who was living in fear of his brother, a man who had not yet quite settled in his faith in God, the Lord said to him in Genesis 28 and verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. A man who was fearful, a man who was on the run, God, is say, God said to him, listen, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. As they prepared to enter the promised land, the children of Israel were assured in Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Of course, we know Isaiah 41, when you pass through the waters, they will not hurt you. When you pass through the fire, they will not hurt you. For I am your God. I will be with you. In fact, here is God addressing a situation of desperation, a situation, a scenario in which his people might be down in the dumps, as it were, and he addresses them through the prophet Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 41, 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And so what we gather here, my friends, is this, that craving, lusting, desiring more and more of earthly possessions, of material possessions, is most unwise, is useless. Why? Because as our helper, God himself has undertaken to be our helper, our aid at all times through thick and thin. God has promised that. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that, of course, implies being our provider. If he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then assuming we are faithful to him, we are not being careless, we are not believing in some kind of prosperity gospel, but we are diligently, conscientiously working, being faithful. God, here's the point, it implies, when God says he'll never leave us nor forsake us, it implies that he'll be our provider, he'll supply our needs, although, here's the point, although it does not necessarily mean it will give, he will give us everything we want. The attitude that's prohibited, keep your life free from covetousness, from the love of money, The alternative that's proposed, be content with such things as you have. The assurance that's promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Well, let's consider, fourthly, 
The attestation or testimony that's proven. The attestation that's proven. Verse 6. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man, what can man do to me. And notice the wonderful correlation here, beloved, between what God has said in verse 5 and what we, therefore, can confidently say in verse 6. Do you see the correlation? God has said, we can, therefore, confidently say, here's the point, that true faith in God is not based on how we feel. True faith in God is not based on what circumstances are dictating True faith in God is grounded on what God has said. I believe what God said, therefore I've spoken. That's the essence of faith. Now, the point of the right to hear in verses 5 and 6 is that in trusting in the truth of the Lord's continual presence with his people, He's suggesting that if one is trusting in the Lord, if one is continually looking to the Lord as one's helper, then one will come to a proven, assured conviction as regards this, the supporting, sustaining grace of God, even the face of the most daunting, intimidating circumstance. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Imagine how these words must have resonated with the recipients of this epistle. Remember now, these were Christians who were suffering fierce persecution, hostile persecution. They were being oppressed. Some of them were being thrown in prison. They had their property confiscated. And the, 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 the writer is saying here, look, God has pledged to be your helper. He has promised to be our constant companion. And that is what he has said so that we can therefore confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And to you and me, beloved, the word of God is saying that rather than making money and possessions the object of our trust, rather than looking to things for our sense of security, we are to see our, the living God, the Lord, as our source of help, as our source of security. And when we do that, he says, we will not be what? Fearful. We will not be fearful. We see no need to be anxious. We see no need to be fretful. We see no need to be overly concerned about our lives. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The question, what can man do to me, of course, implies a negative answer. It's also reminds us of what the Apostle Paul, the question the Apostle Paul raised in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Remember that question he raised after he looked at all the blessings of the believer in Christ, and he raised all the various scenarios, potential scenarios, or rather hypothetical scenarios in which a believer could be overwhelmed. And when he went through all of those, he asked the question, what? He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And no, this, this does not mean 
This, this negative answer does not mean, it does not necessarily mean that man cannot in their hostility and hatred of us come against us and hurt us or even kill us. You see, there are many who have a misguided notion that once I'm living as a Christian, once I'm being faithful to God, God at all costs is going to protect me. I'm not going to ever be killed. I'm not going to be hurt by anyone. That's not true. What can man do to me? The question, of course, implies a negative answer, but it does not mean that literally someone out of hate for us, out of spite against us, cannot come against us and hurt us or even kill us. But the point is that even, even when they kill us, even when they hurt us, they can go so far and no more. Why? Because even though they might kill the body, they cannot what? Kill the soul. That was what our Lord Jesus said. That's why he says, do not fear those, in Matthew 10 verse 28, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Go back to a statement our Lord Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Your life, my life, is not hinged on the things we have. The security of our lives are not hinged, is not hinged on what we possess. And based on the suggestion of the word of God, the essence of our life, the true essence of our life is not based on our continued physical existence. It's not even contingent on our good health. Because the truth is there are many Christians, you see, who, while they are faithful to God, they are suffering tremendously in the body. God allows that in his providence. And that itself tells us that the true essence of our life is not even in our good health. The true essence of our life is found in this, that it is hid with God in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And so against the background of persecution in which this epistle was written, the author of Hebrews, notice what he's doing, is summoning his readers to a life that is free from the love of money, to a life of contentment with what they have. And what he seems to be saying to them here in verse 6 is this, that whereas man might hurt them, whereas they might be hurt by evil men, whereby they might have their property seized, whereby, where, whereas they might be imprisoned and even killed, at the end of the day, they have a far greater possession than money can than money, and they have a far greater possession than what even money could ever buy because they have the greatest of all possessions. They have the living God himself who is ever with them to be their helper and their aid. Wasn't this the point Luther was making in that famed hymn of his, A Mighty Fortress? Is our God 
And in light of the fact that we have in God a mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing, a helper amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing, Luther writes this, he says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still, his kingdom is forever. My friends, that's the spirit of contented trust in the Lord. The Lord who never leaves us nor forsakes his people. The Lord who pledges to be their never failing hope and refuge. How can we make this all of this practical that we have been talking about this morning? I would say, my friends, in these days of economic uncertainty, and aren't we seeing days of economic uncertainty? In these days of economic uncertainty, in these days when we are hearing of the massive collapse of various banks, various financial institutions, when we are hearing of the decline of stocks, when we are hearing of the dwindling of 401ks, The question is, what is your sense of help and security? In what is your sense of security grounded? Is it in your bank account? Is it in your 401k? Let me tell you, based on how things are going, you see, we could have, and we have a lady in our church who can tell you all about this. In fact, she has written about this. We could get up tomorrow morning, wake up tomorrow morning, you see, and it's disaster. Remember what happened in Greece some years ago? It can happen here. The question is, what if the things we're looking to for, creature comfort, what if the things we're looking for, to, to, for comfort, for a sense of security, what if tomorrow they collapse? What if tomorrow they're gone? In what would we be trusting in what would we find our comfort, or solace, or hope? You see, implicit in our text this morning is the truth that a craving desire for possession signals a lack of contentment which only breeds doubt, which only breeds fear. The fear, what fear is associated with this pursuit after things, this inordinate pursuit after things? What fear underlines this pursuit? It is this, the fear of becoming helpless and defenseless. which fear only eats away at our spiritual life. That's why our Lord Jesus warned, as he did in Luke chapter 21, where he says, take heed. He's referring to conditions in the last days. Take heed, lest your hearts become overcharged, overindulgent with eating, with drunkenness, with excessive eating, drinking, for that day will come upon you. But he also talks Bible also talks about the, the importance of not being so depressed at conditions in this world. 
Why? Because he talks about the suddenness of his coming, which will come like a snare upon all the world. Let me tell you this, my friends. The devil has at least two ways to get us. If he does not get us basking in prosperity, if he does not get us basking in our possessions and the things we have, then he gets us in the dump where we are despondent over what we don't have. Or we might be despondent over something else, even though we though have things. And we need to watch that. As one commentator states, quote, he says, This restless eyes and feverish desires are incom- incompatible with rest of soul and incongruous with a profession of holiness. He says, if we would be satisfied with fewer things, we would have more praise, more quietness of spirit, more inward happiness, and certainly more time for prayer, worship service, and the cultivation of the finer values in life, end quote. The relentless pursuit of material possessions, my friends, signals the fact that we are not trusting in God, we're not relying on the Lord as our all-sufficient helper. Our text this morning affirms that an effective antidote, an effective cure to greed, to covetousness, to the acquisition of things, inordinate acquisition of things, is contentment in the Lord. And that one... That we come to the place of contentment. How do we come to the place of contentment? We come to the place of contentment as we reckon on the presence and power and help of our all-sufficient God. And that conversely we become materialistic when we give into the lie that God cannot be trusted to care for us. Materialism is rooted in a lack of trust in God. And being a function of godliness, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, contentment with godliness is great gain. For as the Apostle Paul goes on to say, he says this, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. This is a trite illustration, but it's often said, and it's true, isn't it? We attend many of funerals, but we never see a you all affixed the hearse. Why? Because everything we acquire is going to be left here. It's going to be left here. Really, the only thing that you and I take out of this world, and we do take something if we are saved, the only thing we take from this life is the living God himself and the salvation that is in him. With godliness, contentment is liberating because it frees us from the enslaving obsession with things. It frees us from the endless pursuit of things which sooner or later prove to be futile and unfilling, a chasing after the wind, as Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes puts it. And if God is ever with us, my friends, then for sure he will so work in our hearts that we come to find our satisfaction in him rather than in what is material. 
Contentment then spares us from disappointment and disillusionment. When we are contented in God, when we see God as our all-sufficient helper and guide, then we're going to be free from disappointment. Because here's the point. Should those things fail? Should the old possessions fail? We look back and say, well, at least I have the Lord. This is not just pious talk or should not be just pious talk. The text suggests this, that when we anchor faith in God as our helper, then we develop the conviction whereby we can confidently say, I will not fear what man can do to me. Contentment leads us to the place of trust and rest in the caring providence of God such that whatever befalls us, we have the assurance that come what may, God does all things well. And let me close by just giving some little marker, some little caution concerning this matter of contentment. Contentment is not a natural, inherent disposition. As human beings, we're not naturally contented in the truest sense of the term. And when I use contentment here, I'm speaking contentment from God's perspective. There are people who might seem to be contented, but what happens, if you check it out, their faith is anchored in something other than God. There are people who are relaxed, calm, cool. Why? Because they have money. Because they're in good health, they have good families who surround them. But contentment, Christian contentment, that is, is not a natural inherent disposition. Here's what the renowned preacher C.H. Spurgeon said. He puts it like this, quote, Contentment in all states is not a natural propensity of man. Ill will Ill weeds grow apace. Covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. End quote. Contentment, then, is a learned behavior. We don't just get up and have contentment. Contentment is something we have to be cultivating over the years, over the months. It is a learned behavior. The Apostle Paul gives us insight on this matter. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And note, note this, he's writing from prison. And what does Paul say here in his situation of need? He says this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger Abundance and need. It's a learned behavior. And Paul goes on to suggest that not only is contentment a learned behavior, but contentment derives from the empowering grace of God. It is God who must give us the disposition of contentment because he says in Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All of this to say that an attitude of contentment boils down to a matter of perspective. To the extent that we are focused on God, to the extent that we are setting our affection on things above, not on things that are on the earth, to the extent that we are convinced that God is ever with us, that he is our helper, we are going to focus 
Not on the things of this world, but on him. And that's where we're going to find our contentment. Here's what the songwriter says as I close. You know this. He says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Maybe you're not a Christian, you're not saved, you've never been born again. And the question is, what gives you your greatest source of happiness? Is it the bottle? Is it things? Is it some individual, some relationship? Let me tell you, all of these things will be, will be of no avail. Because at the end of the day, a life without Christ is a life that is vapid. It's a life that is empty. It is a life that is futile. It is a life that can only end in utter frustration. One could have all the wealth in the world. One could have all the treasures of this world and yet be a pauper. Why? Because, as Jesus says, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? And lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul?